Hi, this is Richard Howard, host of the Zero to Something podcast. Thanks for joining me for another episode. On today's episode, I'm lucky enough to interview Ian Dale. Now, if you are based in the UK and any way into politics or just like listening to the radio, you'll definitely know who Ian is. Ian was one of, if not the first political blogger in the UK back in the early 2000s. He runs a humongous publishing empire. He is also a prolific podcaster and he is the host of one of the most popular radio shows in all of the UK, the LBC evening show from 7pm to 10pm, for which he's won a bunch of awards. So we talk about Ian's new book, Why Can't We All Just Get Along? We talk about what really drove him into being into politics. We talk about him standing to be MPs and how the failure to, to win an election actually impacted him. And we cover a little bit about the state of politics in the UK at the moment. Now, this episode was actually recorded a month or two ago, so a couple of things that we talk about might seem a little bit out of date, but that's the reason why. Now, I hope you really enjoy the episode. If you do, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at underscore rhoward, and Ian is at Ian Dale. That is spelled I-A-I-N. Now, on to the episode. The idea behind the podcast is that I think uh, I have a hypothesis. Basically, that the kind of the best, most successful, particularly creative people have this like little voice in the back of their head that never lets them rest. And then you know, in, inventors, writers, entrepreneurs, and that that thing that never kind of lets you be satisfied. Yeah. And so, what I want to do is talk to people and and explore that uh, with people that I believe probably have this little voice in the back of their head that you know, even when you're sitting on the beach and it's sunny and you should be relaxing, there's something going done that thing that you should be doing. Well, we're doing this on a very good day because this is the <laughs> first day of my holiday. Oh, and I shouldn't be and I shouldn't be doing a podcast. So that's rather <laughs> proof of your thesis. Very much so. But so. I mean, like, do you have that little voice at the back? Because you like you do so much. You do obviously. You know, like, do you have that little voice? Because you do. Like, you've got the radio. You've got the podcast. You had um, bite back publishing. You always had political and all that stuff. So you've done like an awful lot. And I can't imagine that that's just purely accidental and you kind of fell into it. Well, I, I wrote the other day. I do a weekly newsletter. And I started it off last week by saying, I think I've lost the art of doing nothing. Yeah. And I genuinely believe that. If I'm, I mean, at the moment, I'm talking to you. I've got the test match on, on the television <laughs> as well. But obviously, I've got, you've got my full concentration. <laughs> I imagine. But, if, but I can't sit here and just watch the cricket. I have to yeah. be doing something as well. So this morning, and this is the first day of my holiday, believe it or not. So this morning, I've been working on my West Ham blog because we're, okay. we're launching a new uh, version of it. So I've been updating all the player statistics. Now, <laughs> I mean, what a stupid thing to do on the first morning of your holiday. And then I do you as, as a podcast. I haven't got anything else planned today, but then tomorrow I've got the For The Many podcast, which I do twice a week, which yep. I can't really not do. I suppose I could get a substitute, but I mean, who could substitute for me? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but Jackie's gone on holiday, right? So you're like, well, she's she, allowed to go away. She's allowed to go away on holiday and you're not allowed to relax. Is that is that the she, relationship you guys have? Ha, she has gone on holiday, but we've been doing this podcast now for nearly three years. And I, I haven't missed an episode yet. I don't think I have. No, I'm pretty sure I haven't. So anyway, I don't regard most of what I do as work. I think that's the key thing. I okay. really enjoy virtually everything I do. So if I was in a job that I regarded as a bit of a slog, yeah, I would knock off at five o'clock just like everybody else. 
but I, I'm not in a job like that. It's w- weird hours. And I do lots of things, as you know, around it. But most of the things I do are all designed with the same aim, to get more people listening to my radio show. Okay. So when I, write, when I write books, when I go and Good Morning Britain at half past six in the morning, the aim is not necessarily... I, mean, I do enjoy doing that, but the aim is to draw people into the main thing, which is my radio show. Going backwards, because uh, you obviously weren't always on the radio, so I, I knew you initially from, from your blog, from, the, I, I guess, like the old blog. Uh, yeah. I think I, I said to you in the email, it kept me entertained. I had a very, very boring job in finance, and I literally had my day planned out via like, the blogs I'd read. I'd read you, I would read, and kind of you led me into like Andrew Sullivan and Dizzy Thinks and Tom Harris and even Guido Fox. And, you know, that kept me entertained in the hours in which I was supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. You, were not, you were not alone in that. You, we, we were a little bit of a distraction. And, and when I was doing that blog, this was, what, 2000? Well, it started, I think, in 2003, but mainly 2005 to 10. I had such pressure to deliver the goods on that because people wanted six, seven, eight stories a day. And if yeah. I didn't provide that, I, I'd get complaints. I'm thinking, well, collect your money on the way out. What were you doing pre-2003 when you decided, I think I'm going to start a blog? I think I'm going to go and, and kind of put my thoughts down and, and have people read them and, and, and then go from there? Well, I only discovered blogging on a trip to Washington where a friend of mine had a blog. And I said, well, what's that? So he showed me and I instantly got what it could be. And yeah. nobody was really, I mean, there were some blogs in England, but I'd certainly never heard of them. I only discovered them after that, but they didn't really resonate with the kind of Westminster politics I was interested in. So I started something up, I think this was actually in 2002, and it was on a platform which I don't think exists anymore. And then I went onto the blogger platform in 2003, and it, it all went from there. Then I was selected as a parliamentary candidate, so I used it in my campaign. Not yeah. to very good effect, it turned out, since I, I lost rather massively. But it was really after the campaign finished and I was working for David Davis so I had to pause it then and then when I finished that in December 2005 that's when it really took off because I got some inside information about Charles Kennedy being toppled as Lib Dem leader which turned out to be bang on and then some stuff about John Prescott I got some exclusives on that so I built up quite a good audience fairly quickly conservative home was already going at that point and so Tim Montgomery Paul Staines and I we kind of became the three musketeers of political blogging there were there were no blogs on the left at that point and for those for those five years the right were really in the ascendancy on the blogosphere and then Twitter came along and Twitter, I think, gave the left an opportunity which they grabbed far better than people on the right did in in some ways. And I think that's the case now. If you look at Twitter in the 2019 general election campaign on polling day, I was convinced that Corbyn was heading for a landslide just because of what I was reading on Twitter. But Twitter does not reflect real life. And we we should reflect that sometimes. No, for sure. I don't know if you you saw the kind of post-mortem that the Labour Party did, not to kind of go all political, because I I want to focus on you, but the post-mortem of the election, one of the things he said was a positive, was their engagement on Twitter. And you're like, well, yeah, but you still lost massively in a humongous landslide. Yeah, but socially, we, we did really well. And you're like, and, and, and yeah. for me, I think, so this is, this is like a, an idea that I have. I think that people on the left versus people on the right take Twitter seriously. People on the left take Twitter seriously. And people on the right don't really take social media that seriously. And that's why sure I, I, think, that. I, I think, I think, and so in my mind, like things like the, the phenomenon of like shit posting and trying to wind people up is, is exclu- mostly in the US is kind of a right wing thing. And they do take things seriously, obviously, but I mean, generally, whereas people on the left really take what happens on Twitter seriously. 
and they think that is their world because it's their bubble of people who kind of agree with them. Well, it, it is a bubble, and, and I'm afraid that's where we've got to, where everyone exists in their own silos or echo chambers. They want their own views to be validated, and anyone that goes against the views is obviously a fascist. And it, it's really, really unhealthy, which is kind of why I wrote the book that I've got out at the moment, because I'm just fed up with this, this shouty world where everybody thinks that they are right, that nobody else is entitled to an opinion, and any opinion they've got is totally invalid. Yeah. But if you if you kind of look at yourself, you know you're somebody who who kind of grew up on on the right and in conservative uh, politics. You worked for for David Davis. Do you think that the experiences and I, w- I want to go back to kind of the the effort to get into parliamentary politics, but like the experience you've had after that, bite back publishing, you've had to publish authors across the political spectrum. You know the radio show, the podcast you do with with a former Labour Home Secretary. Has that kind of broadened your horizon and an openness to, to kind of other political ideas? Whereas if you had, you know, say you'd gone into the Conservative Party or you'd stayed as a kind of purely right-wing blog, you might have been a little bit more siloed. I think the, it's the radio show that has had the main impact on me because when you're talking to ordinary members of the public for 10 years, for three hours a day, I mean, you talk to a hell of a lot of people and you hear their experiences and often they're very, very personal and emotional experiences. And you can't help but be affected by that. So I, I think I have become less tribal. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to criticise the Conservatives when I think they've got something wrong. But what I've, what I've noted, particularly on social media, is that no one ever notices when I do that. They notice if I say that Boris Johnson has done something right. But if I criticise him or, or the government, two days later, oh, he and such a Tory stooge. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I just ripped up Gavin Williamson's statement in front of a camera because I thought the whole exam shambles was an utter fiasco. I was very critical of all of the Dominic Cummings, Barnard Castle thing. But yeah, I, I will try and explain from time to time what I think the government is trying to do. And if I think they've got something really right, yes, I will praise them for it. But isn't that what a political commentator is supposed to do? But when you have, um, for example, I remember one show a few years ago, we were talking about universal credit. And I think the theory of universal credit is, is entirely right. And I could happily argue for it. I could happily argue for the theory of the bedroom tax. But when you get three grown men crying on national radio, one after the other, because of universal credit and what's happening, you think, well, something's not right here. So you can't just defend it hook, line and sink. You can't, you can defend the theory, but you can't defend the implementation. Similarly with the bedroom tax, I could happily say that, well, anybody that's got two spare bedrooms should maybe um, be paying, uh, or whether you regard it as a tax or an increase in rent, I don't know. But surely it's almost, if, if, you, if you're renting from somewhere, it, it, you do need a spare bedroom. People are social animals. They want relatives or friends to come and stay. Some disabled people need a spare room to store their equipment in. Um, and it's only through hearing people's experiences that you can form those kind of conclusions. So some people imagine that I've gone all lefty and, and woke or whatever. I haven't. I'm still as um, dry as dust on economic issues than I ever was. But I think on social issues, maybe I have become a bit, or my social conscience is rather bigger than it might be otherwise. The the quote kind of gets attributed to Churchill a little bit. If you're not a a liberal in your youth, you've got no heart. And if you've not conservative as you get older, you've got no brain. You kind of, you've flipped that a little bit. I've, I've kind of flipped it in a way. I still regard myself as a conservative but I'm also a liberal. And I mean, I know in American yeah. terms, you can't really be both. 
but I, I, I am a social liberal. I'm much more socially liberal than I used to be. I used to have very conservative views on abortion, for instance. But again, you, you learn over the years that maybe, again, the theory, I mean, I, I, I would love abortions not to exist. But in the end, you have to have a degree of pragmatism and recognise that though it had existed, even 2,000 years ago, women were having abortions. So therefore, it's a bit like prostitution. You have to recognise the reality of the situation and then regulate it accordingly. Now, I don't think we've got the regulation right on either of those issues at at the moment. But I, I would argue a much more socially liberal point of view on both of them than I would have done 20 years ago. Yeah. So I want to kind of like go backwards. And, and so where did you become like politically engaged? Quite early on, actually. I, I can remember in the, one of the 1974 elections when I would have been 11, 12, I wandered into my parents' bedroom early one morning and started to tell them why they should vote Labour, which was interesting. My mother just <laughs> rolled over and told me to go back to bed. So I, but I can distinctly remember that. And then I can remember the next year, the day Margaret Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party, my grandmother was ill in bed. And I can remember rushing upstairs to tell her that she'd been elected. And my grandmother started crying. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And she, she said, well, I just can't believe that a woman could lead a political party. And she was, my mother was, my grandmother was always known as the Queen Mother because she was a bit regal. Um, but she was also a bit of a feminist. She was the first, and this is where I can kind of relate to her, in the 1920s, she left the little village where she grew up in uh, border, on the Essex-Cambridgeshire border. All her family were farmers and she left to go to London to work for the post office. This was unheard of in those days. Yeah. Then she ended up at Wembley Stadium when it opened in 1923. Uh, and I was the first in my family to break out of farming. I, all my cousins, my uncles, my aunts, they were all farmers. And when I was growing up, they'd all say, oh, of course, you're going to be a farmer when you grow up, aren't you? And I knew I wasn't. I never said anything, but I just knew. And my parents must have been very disappointed when they realized the awful truth. But to to their absolute eternal credit, they never put pressure on me to to do it. I think maybe they saw the writing on the wall for small farms. And so I decided I wanted to be a German teacher. Now, my life took on a different path, but I went to university to study German. No other member of my family had ever been to university. A lot of my cousins went to private school. I said on Good Morning Britain last year, it didn't do them any good because they haven't got no <laughs> level to rub together. And of course, one of them was watching, which was an awkward moment, as it turned. Although actually, they did find it very funny, or they said they did anyway. Yeah, but you've not been invited to, to any family gathering since. I, I found this out at a family funeral. And <laughs> one of them came up and said, oh, well, I was watching you. Well, in fact, I knew that they'd, they'd seen it because they told my sister. So I was rather dreading meeting them. <laughs> but actually, it was fine. And they, they were fine about it. They, and they said, well, you're absolutely right. We haven't. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was that. I suppose I first dipped my toe into political activism at, at university. I remember, I, I think I stood in the, well, in fact, I did stand in the 1979 mock election at my school and won with a 27% majority with the National Front coming second, which I don't think the National Front would be allowed to stand in a mock election now. And then I went to UEA and there was no conservative organisation there. This was 1981. I had a gap year in between school and university. And I remember going to a debate on the Falklands War, and it was, it was actually going on at the time. And I, I thought, assumed in my naivety 
that this would be a debate between someone from the government and someone from the left explaining why we shouldn't be going to war. It turned out to be a debate between the hard left and the soft left, but neither of which thought we should go to war. Yeah. So I was getting increasingly annoyed by this. So when it came to Q&A, I stood up and made my own little speech. I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> so at the Freshers' Fair at the beginning of my second year, this would have been October 1982, um, a friend and I set up a Conservative Society stand and we could not believe the numbers of people who were signing up. Bear in mind, UEA was incredibly left-wing in those days. All universities and, have remained pretty left-wing. Well, up to a point. I think that there are huge amounts of shy right-wingers at universities who, for, for reasons that are entirely understandable, they just won't go public. But we found in the next year's general election in 1983, the number of Tory posters that went up in windows and student residences was unbelievable. We had more members than the Labour Party. And the Labour Party actually thought this was great because they had a real enemy to fight. Before that, yeah. they were fighting the Socialist Workers' Party. So it was, it was a really, really exciting year. And I spent far more time on politics than I really did on my studies. And I remember, although I was studying German, I did a course on Thatcherism in the, in the summer term. And Professor John Charmley was my tutor. And I said to him, look, I'm going to struggle because I was effectively helping to run the general election campaign in Norwich North. And he said to me, look, you're going to learn far more about politics by doing that than you ever will by sitting in my tutorials and writing essays. I I did write an essay, but I think he just gave me a first because he knew (laughs) what the work I was doing was was teaching me far more than any academic ever could. It wasn't actually, it was a voluntary thing. It wasn't actually part of my degree, I don't think anyway. So that was really my political blooding in terms of political activism. And then at what point did you decide I'm going to be an MP? That is, you know, that is my ultimate goal. It wasn't long after that, because I then got a job with Patrick Thompson, who, was, who had won the Norwich North seat in that election. And I was one of the first in my year to get a job to go to after my finals. And so I became his researcher. I say researcher. In those days, MPs didn't have a very big office allowance. My, I was paid £6,000 salary. And the entire office budget for staff was 12000 And in those days, most MPs paid their wives, whether they actually did anything or not. So I started on this terrible salary. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But it's one of those jobs that you do love. And you can imagine that you could end up staying in for years and years and years. But I knew I had to only stay for a couple of years up until the 87 election. But I was just a glorified secretary. I was doing all the correspondence. It was a marginal seat. In the second year of it, I actually went back to Norwich and I was paid half by the Conservative Party and half by him. So I was doing half of the job parliamentary work and then the other half of the time I'd spend effectively planning for the election campaign. So that was a fantastic two years. Made lots of lifelong friends in in that period. And so I'd spent quite a lot of the 1980s in Norwich, which okay. is a city that I love. And I mean, I'm recording this interview, I've got a house just north of Norwich. So and then, then I actually stood for Parliament in North Norfolk in 2005. But I did apply to go on the Conservative candidates list when I was 24 years old. Okay. So I think... That was 1986. And I went to do this, you had to do this weekend course where and they had all sorts of tasks that you had to do. And I thought I'd done really well. 
And I expected to get on the list because yeah. I, I, I think we all know if we've done well in interviews, we know. Yeah. And we did all this group exercises and made a little speech and took part in a debate. And I felt it had all gone swimmingly well. And I was absolutely astonished when I got a letter um, saying, well, we really like you, but come back in a couple of years time. And I was, I was furious, but they were absolutely right. They really yeah. were right. I mean, I, I, my only experience was of being a student and working in parliament for a couple of years. And there are far too many people who go into politics just with that experience, even nowadays. So, I mean, they did say actually afterwards that they'd made a mistake and they'd put, actually, they actually, they meant to put me in a group where I could apply for seats in my own region, but some, there was some admin error. But by the time I found that out, it was too late. So I put it to one side and then I spent most of the, well, from 1987 through to 1996 in a variety of jobs in public affairs and lobbying. Then in 96, I started Politico's bookshop and I kind of put parliament to one side, but I got to what, 2001, 2002. And I thought, you know, if I don't do this soon, I'm going to be yeah. too old. And I was, so I was 40 in 2002 when I got on the candidates list. And I think looking back, the main reason that I did put it to one side actually was nothing to do with work. It was the fact that I was gay and I wasn't prepared to be open about it at that point. Certainly not to my family anyway. And, but I knew that if I stood for parliament, I couldn't do it in all conscience without actually being open about that. So that, that probably... I mean, I should have, what I should have been doing was applying for seats in the run-up to 97 or after 97. Now, of course, given the electoral position of the Conservatives, I mean, who knows whether I'd have got anything or not. Yeah. But that throughout the, the whole of that period and going into the 2000s, the timing was just really bad. I mean, the guy that's won North Norfolk now, Duncan Baker, I mean, he was in the right place at the right time. He fought the election when Norman Lamb stood down. Well, if I'd, if I'd fought that this time, I'd have won it as well. So there's always that sort of thought, oh, what if? But I, I never really sort of think, I don't, I'm not a person who's obsessed by regrets. I would have liked to have done it. But the radio has kind of given me what politics used to. So if I, haven't, if I hadn't got the job at LBC, I might have continued with politics but I decided in 2010 that I was giving up completely yeah but do you think with the experience that you have now including like radio podcasting and everything else that you would be a better MP now than you would have been if you'd got into parliament in 2005 oh undoubtedly I, I think that I reckon I was 50 when I really began to think I know what I'm like. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And self-knowledge is a great thing. And I don't think you get that until you are of a certain age. It'll be different for everybody. With some people, yeah. it might be 40. With some people, it might be 60. And, and I also lost a slight, well, it wasn't a chip on my shoulder, but I, I always felt I, I had went to a state school, went to um, what then would have been regarded as a second-rate university. It isn't anymore. Uh, and I... I always felt slightly inferior around people who had been to public school, Eton, Oxbridge, whatever. And it yeah. was only literally seven or eight years ago when that feeling went, where if I was in a group discussion with George Osborne, Ed Vasey, Nick Bowles, people like that, I didn't feel inferior anymore. I can't explain why it, that, that feeling just went it, it, it is slightly to do with imposter syndrome, I think, because I do suffer from that, particularly in my writing. I know now that I can talk the hind legs off a donkey. I mean, 10 years on the radio teaches you that you can talk about any subject 
for any length of time and sound vaguely knowledgeable about it, which actually before I went on the radio, I, I wouldn't have been able to do necessarily. But it, you do learn that. Whereas on my writing, even though I've never ever had an article rejected, I always feel when I press the send button, they're going to send it back saying this is shit starting. <laughs> they never have, but I know that I can't write in the, in the style that Matthew Paris does or Danny Finkelstein okay. or Michael Gove or Boris Johnson yeah. or whatever. But in the end, you've got to do it your own way. So I know that I write as I speak. Well, that actually can be an advantage as well as a disadvantage. The book that I've just published, why can't we just get along? That I say at the beginning, this is not an intellectual tome because I'm not an intellectual. And I've had so many people say that when they're reading it, they can hear my voice in every sentence. And I think that's actually, that actually is an art by itself. So maybe I'm sort of slightly getting over that feeling of imposter syndrome now. I mean, that's the upside of having your own blog is that you can never get an article rejected. Well, this was the thing. In the early days, a lot of mainstream journalists thought that bloggers were just sad little people in their pajamas in their bedrooms and they were trying to be journalists because they they wouldn't be able to make it otherwise and i remember saying something rather arrogant to one of them once said if i wanted to be a journalist i would be a journalist but i'd I'd never and i was a journalist for a brief time in 1990 a financial journalist but i've i've even now i don't describe myself as a journalist there are journalistic aspects to what i do but I'm not a journalist in the conventional sense. I've got no journalistic training. I've got no broadcasting training come to that matter. I can, I can do that, do the normal journalistic stuff. If there's a breaking news story on the radio, I will go into BBC mode and I, I know what, what to do. I know that I shouldn't be offering lots of opinions and speculate too much. And I will offer the listeners the facts. And I love doing breaking news. So I prove that I can do that. But I can also do opinionated radio. And if you are a normal journalist, you're not doing opinion stuff. Now, there are blurring of the lines at the moment on that, I think. And you look at some of the, even some BBC journalists now, I think, do venture into opinion in a way that they just never would have been able to do 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that's that's almost inevitable with the way that the media is going. But it does, I mean, there's, I don't know if you've seen um, this, Lewis Goodall, he's written a piece for the New Statesman, which actually I thought was a really good piece on the exams fiasco. But a lot of people on the right are absolutely up in arms. A, how can he possibly be impartial and write for a left to centre publication? Would they say the same if he wrote for The Spectator? Not so sure. And that was actually a very carefully worded piece. It, it was condemnatory in a way of the whole shambles. But he said, yeah, but it was Labour in Wales, the SNP in Scotland, the DUP in northern ireland now you say well you can say well he might have just added that in just to sort of throw people off the scent but it was a brilliantly written piece and he is a good journalist now we all know his political background people know my political background and yes people will always judge us because of that but i think i've proved over the years that if i interview a tory politician i i can mix it with the best of them i don't go into an interview trying to catch people out whether they're labor or tory i'm trying to get information explanation out of them but if they try and pull the wool over my eyes i I will rip them apart just as anybody else would if you're being attacked from both sides you probably know that you're doing something right well that's what people always say i think that's a slightly lazy way of looking at it i mean sometimes (laughs) if people if people attack you it could be it could be because you're crap like there's that side but like every every time you interview like a a tory politician you get shit from the the right every time you interview a labor politician you get shit from left they say like i'm applying the same standard to both i think the thing is I have only once had a Labour politician complain about an interview that I did. And looking back, she was probably a bit justified because it was all about Brexit. And I did say she'd lied, which was probably not the right thing to do. 
I have had quite a few run-ins with Tory politicians, and that, but they all react very differently. Some of them just regard it as gaining experience of what it's like to be under attack in an interview. I remember Robert Halfon once, I gave him a good going over on something where he just didn't know the subject. And he, he rang me up that evening, and I, I thought about not answering the phone because I knew <laughs> what it would be about. But he, he said, well, I want to thank you because you taught me a valuable lesson there. And I thought, well, what an adult. Because yeah. other politicians wouldn't have done that. They, they would have picked up the phone and had a rant. How dare you? I thought you were my friend. I thought you were a Tory. How dare you treat me like that? But no, he, he, he did it the right way. And I mean, we all learn all the time. I learn from every interview I do, say everyone, but you do learn things and then you store them away and then you hopefully do it better next time. And I'm sure politicians are the same. So I want to kind of rewind a little bit back to um, the parliamentary defeat, if, if we can, and talk about that. When you were campaigning, did you think you were going to win? I did, when I applied for the seat, I mean, I knew North Norfolk. It was somewhere that I'd spent quite a lot of time. Even as a child, we'd go on day trips to sort of Wells and Hunstanton. Actually, Hunstanton's not in the constituency. But I always thought it was a very conservative area with a small seat, uh, and I couldn't understand how the Liberal Democrats had ever won it. I did my research. I knew that Norman Lamb would be a formidable opponent because he'd fought it twice before he won it in 2001. And he was a very, very good constituency MP. And he was also, for a Liberal Democrat, quite right wing. I mean, in the sense that he was mildly Eurosceptic in a very Europhile party. But I thought I could win it back. But I remember a conversation I had with Chris Renard, who was the Lib Dems sort of campaigning guru. And I knew him quite well. And he said to me, don't go for that because Norman will win by 10,000. But I thought I knew better. He was absolutely right. Now, I, I was selected about 18 months before the election, and I threw everything at this campaign. I, I was running Politicos at the time, two companies, the bookshop and the publishing business. For the last nine months, effectively, I wasn't there at all. I was in, in Norfolk most of the time. But it became clear to me, I think probably around January, February of 2005, that I was not going to win. I remember I, I, I got huge amounts of publicity in the local paper. Everyone said I was running a brilliant campaign. It was very high profile. I was going to the opening of an envelope, just like yes. Norman did. I ran lots of campaigns, coastal erosion, keeping the local hospital open, all, all the usual things that candidates do. But I was doing them like 10 times more. And I knew that I was getting a good reputation. And I kept getting people on the doorstep saying, well, if only we could have you and Norman as joint MPs. I said, well, that's not the way it works. <laughs> but I began to think, well, they're going to stick with Nurse for fear of something worse. Yeah. And I remember going on Saturday afternoon, I think this was in February 2005, going around a village near Cromer called Overstrand, very well-to-do, lots of big houses, prime Tory territory. Every single person came to the door and said, well, we are conservatives, but we vote for Norman Lamb because we think he's an excellent MP. And several of them said, we really like you, but I mean, he's really good. And it's, it was so difficult to argue against. I mean, I, I could say, well, look, I've got a commitment from Andrew Lansley, the Shadow Health Secretary, to keep Wells Hospital open if the Tories win. Norman can't do that. He's in a party that can, they can shout a lot, but they can't actually do anything. If you vote Conservative, you get a Conservative government and that hospital stays open, it cut absolutely no ice whatsoever. Yeah. So I remember going home that afternoon and saying to my partner, the game's up. This is not going to happen. And that was a really difficult three months, particularly during the election campaign, where I knew that I wasn't going to win. 
I couldn't let on to the party workers because you, you are their leader. You, you've got sure. to motivate them. But I, I knew. And it was a horrible election campaign. It rained virtually every day. And I had an agent who was utterly incompetent and was actually, I think, working against me. She walked out twice and I thought, good. But unfortunately, <laughs> she was persuaded to come back. And on polling day, I mean, I don't know what happened on polling day, but several people were saying to me, why are we knocking up Liberal Democrat voters? These are on our list. And I was told that the Liberal Democrat pledges were printed off rather than Conservative pledges. Now, yeah. I'll never be able to know whether that was true or not, or whether it was people just sort of saying things that they thought I would want to hear. I, I just don't know. But it was a horrible, that election campaign itself was a horrible experience. Do I regret, regret going for that seat? In some ways, yes, in that I, I think I, if I had hung on a bit, I would have got a safe seat. On the other hand, I had 18 months, which were fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Met loads of wonderful people, but it, it almost bankrupted me. Yeah. And I, I vowed that I would never put myself in that position again. And my only saving grace was that I bought a cottage for 140000 I think. And I ran up £40,000 worth of debts. And I sold it the following January in 2006 for 180000 which wiped out the 40,000 of debts. Yeah. So, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons from it. Sometimes less is more. I think probably I campaigned too hard and was probably had a bit too much of a profile. I think I was on television too much, which made them think that I was always in London rather than I actually did live in the constituency, which I mean, Norman Land didn't, which I tried to make something of, but even that didn't really damage him at all. So the stars were not aligned. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was as simple as that. And I should have taken advice on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about it now, you feel like you sound kind of like very, you know, obviously come to terms with what's been 15 years. At the time, how did you kind of deal with the failure? Did it add to the imposter syndrome you, you might have felt? Did you like you know, go into a funk for three months or was it just like, you know, that's over with now and, and on to the next thing? I don't really live my life by regretting a lot of things. Uh, everything you do adds to the just the experience of life. You learn from everything. And I remember... At the count, I mean, I'm quite an emotional person. I, I, I cry very easily. I take after my mother in that regard. And I was determined to hold it together because, as I say, I, I was the leader of the local Conservatives and yeah. I, I couldn't afford to go to pieces. And I remember I had prepared a, a little speech. I didn't write it. I just sort of had a little card with about four bullet points on. And I was determined that that was going to be the speech of my life. And it was. I, I wish I'd been able to record it because I was really proud of it. And I said everything that I wanted to say. I was gracious in defeat. I thanked everyone that had worked for me and all the rest of it. And I nearly went when Norman, Norman, Norman Lamb on the stage put his arm around me. And then the next day, and I remember leaving the count, getting in the car with my partner, and we had to go to one of the local party workers' places. There was sort of going to be like food and drink and whatever. And it was the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. And I remember getting in the car and just howling my eyes out. But I then had to pull myself back together to go to this function. And then the next morning, the council election results were being counted in the same place. And I could have easily not gone. But I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to hold my head up. I'm going to walk in that room. And I'll never forget this. As I did so, my sister rang. And I just said, oh, I can't talk to you. I said, if I talk to you, I'm going to cry. And I, I just w walked in, into that room. And they were sort of halfway through the count. And everybody looked up and it was one of those moments that you can sort of remember in slow motion. And I can remember 
the Liberal Democrat count, not the counters, the um, party workers, yeah. there lots of councillors and activists, they all started clapping me. And that meant an awful lot. But it was, yeah, it, as I say, I don't regret it. I regret, I do regret not ever making it into Parliament because I, I nearly got a seat the next time around. I nearly got Bracknell. But after the 2010 election, when I hadn't got a seat, I, and I hadn't got the job at LBC at the time. I had done a few programmes at LBC, but they hadn't got a permanent contract. I was at a reception in Downing Street and David Cameron came up to me and he said, I hope you're going to try again. And just on the spare of the moment, I said, do you know I'm not? Yeah. I said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be 50 at the next election. I'm not going to spend the next few, well, no, I'd be 53. I said, I'm not going to spend the next five years flogging a dead horse. So I then emailed Saeed Avazi, who was the Conservative Party chairman at the time. And I texted her. I said, look, can you take me off the candidates list? And she phoned me immediately. She said, are you sure? And I said, I am sure. And I was. There was always that little bit of doubt, I suppose. But I haven't regretted it. Um, I had a flicker of interest again in 2017 when Alan Hazelhurst, who was a Saffron Walden MP, which is, where I was, which is where I grew up, he stood down. And I, for 24 hours, I am denied because I think I would have stood a really good chance of being selected for that. But I wrote down a list of pros and cons and came up with four pros and 15 cons. So, and I'm 58 now, so it ain't going to happen now, which is, is he- which is wrong because in other countries when you're in your 50s, you should actually be going into politics. Here, we have this obsession that if you don't get into Parliament by the time you're 40, well, it's kind of too late. Interesting. I mean, because, like you said, you would be a much better MP now than you would have been if you did. And it's it's probably true of a lot of people who, if they were elected 15 years after they first tried, they'd be much more worldly, much more knowledgeable. Probably better MPs, maybe worse party parliamentarians. Well, I mean... It's it's difficult to generalise because I mean you, you look at the current crop of politicians. I've written a piece this week saying that there are only five people in the current cabinet who I think actually really merit being cabinet ministers. And it's really worrying, I think, that when you you look at the next rank down, the ministers of state, people who are people who would expect to be promoted to the cabinet at some point again, I think there's only five of those that are actually any good. You look at all of the people who've been in the cabinet who are sitting on the back benches and think, well, maybe it'd be a good idea for Boris Johnson to bring back a bit of experience. But you go through the whole list of those, and there's probably only four or five of those who you think would make a material difference to the quality of the current cabinet. So I think we are in a bit of a pickle, not just in the Conservative Party, but you look on the Labour shadow front bench. And I mean, there's a few there, quite a few there who are, shall we say, punching above their weight. I agree. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be political. So like I would have been, I was a natural Conservative voter. You know, I read, like I said at the beginning, I read your blog, I read, I read Fox, but for the last couple of elections, so I, I voted um, to remain. But, you know, I'm not like an, an ardent Romaniac. But the last couple of elections, I've voted Lib Dem. I could, you know, I'm I'm Jewish. Could and even if I wasn't, I don't think I could ever bring myself to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And I couldn't bring myself to vote for a party that was that was you know willing to take us out of the EU because I personally believe this like, is a huge mistake. I'm pretty sure. I think on the internet, I'd be called a centrist dad, pretty centrist, father of three. And it's you know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for competence, right? I'm looking for someone who yeah. is whether the prime minister, whether the the chancellor. You know, I'm engaged in politics, but I'm not like incredibly engaged. So I want to know that when I when I give my vote, to someone that they're going to run the country in like um, even if they're not doing the 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 policies that I necessarily really agree with. I think Keir Starmer gives off an air of competence. Yes, and I'm not entirely sure that you know that Boris Johnson does. 
and I think his his kind of like blustery act, his his folksy man of the people ish act, it kind of works, but not in a pandemic, and you know, not necessarily if we're going through like a humongous recession. And you know, when he quotes you know Latin and ancient Greek, that you know makes him seem really smart, but it's not it's not what you need. Well, I I, I know what you're saying, and you may well proved to be right. I think Keir Starmer's had a very good start as Labour leader. I won't deny that. But whether he's going to appeal to the kind of voters that he needs to to get the seats, the red wall seats back, and they have to win more seats in Wales and Scotland, even if they win the red wall seats back, they still can't win a majority. So I don't know whether an Islington lawyer is going, I mean, he will appeal to people like you who just want someone with a semblance of competence. You're not particularly ideological. So the fact that he was the shadow Brexit secretary who was architect of Labour's disastrous Brexit policy at the last election probably won't mean an awful lot to you, but it will, it would do if you lived in Barnsley. Yeah. No, look, I, um, I accept that. And, and I, and I understand. And that's sort of like, I understand why people voted for Brexit. Like if you are unemployed in, in Sutherland and David Cameron comes up to you and says, Oh, if we, if we leave the EU, we're going to GDP is going to drop by 3%. And you say, well, difference does it make to me i've been unemployed for three years and my friends are unemployed and my family's unemployed or you know the factory that used to work in is closed doesn't make a difference if you have that kind of argument and also if, if i look at things that are happening in kind of hungary and in poland and the on the more authoritarian far right i look at that and go well maybe it's not a bad a, a bad thing that we're kind of out of that club but at the same well, time yeah, what i I'm, look for in, in in a leader is is that air of you know they can they can manage and this is the thing like if you're a professional politician the Archer has never managed anybody before right He's never had a team of people who've also managed people. He was mayor of London. Oh, I mean, I know what you're saying about a lot of people going to politics now without any experience at all. And he went in to be mayor of London with no experience like that. Yeah. But I don't think he was a bad mayor of London. He's not somebody I would have picked to be prime minister. I've made that clear over many years. But he wasn't a bad mayor of London. He was a politician a bit like George W. Bush, who recognised where his own weaknesses were and appointed people accordingly. And he's done that in some ways, in number 10, I mean, not, I think, with the same success as he had in, in City Hall in some ways, but I don't think you can say that eight years of running um, the biggest city in the world doesn't qualify him to be Prime Minister. So we've only got like a short amount of time left. So you said 2010, I'm not doing this anymore. LBC wasn't on the horizon. What were you planning for? Like, did you have a plan? No, I didn't. I've never had a plan. I was at that point running Back Publishing and Total Politics magazine. And as far as I was concerned, that's what I would be doing for. I just didn't have any other plans at all. I'd always wanted to be a radio presenter, but for whatever reason, it hadn't happened. I did some stuff on Five Live and I thought, oh, well, somebody's going to come and poach me, but they didn't. So I'd kind of given up on it. And I was only pure by purely good fortune that I got the job at LBC because Yasmin Alibi Brown, who's a really good friend of mine, we disagree on everything, but we just get on. She told me one day that she got an audition at LBC. So I said, and I'd done stuff on LBC like during the Iraq war. And so I knew what it was. And I said, oh, I'd love to do that. So she gave me the name of the guy that ran it, Jonathan Richards. So I emailed him and he knew of me because of my blog. And I said to him, well, look, Yasmin and I do Sky pay-per-views together. We got on really well. I think we could do a really good program together. So to cut a long story short, they invited us in to do a fake program. It's a 20-minute fake phone-in. So LBC producers would pretend to be the callers. And it was a disaster. Yasmin is a brilliant commentator and brilliant at giving opinions and analysing. But she 
found it a struggle to do the radio bits sort of going up to the news, teasing ahead to the next hour to keep people listening, all of that sort of thing. So I walked out of there thinking, well, I'll never hear from them again. Anyway, three weeks later, they said, Patrick Hoskins ill this evening. Can you come and do the evening show? And I said, oh, with Yasmin. And they said, no, just you. Hashtag awkward. But she's never held it against me, so which is, reflects well on her. And that was the start. And I did some cover shifts over the summer. Petri was then away for a month. So I did the evening show for a month. And I knew that it was going well. And I thought at the end of it, they might offer me a weekend show or something. And then they blew my mind by offering me Petri's show for the whole like five days a week really? seven till ten and she was she was moving to the afternoons and i thought how can i do this if i've got i've got a full-time job anyway yeah but well i mean we made it work they were very good they, they paid for a hotel for a couple of nights a week because i don't live in london so that was going to be a problem and it yeah we made it work and within three years i was radio presenter of the year so awesome. <laughs> I, I kind of, I mean, I know, I always thought that I would be really good at radio, but I just never really had the opportunity to prove it. And they gave me that opportunity. And the, the one thing I'm slightly sad about now is that I think the Ian Dale of 2010 would not get a, a look in now because it's all about, it's all about big names. Okay. And I, I think that there's a lot of talent out there that isn't being spotted at the moment because if you look at any radio station at the moment, generally the presenters often now come from the world of television. And television is very, very different to radio. Radio is a lot more difficult than people think. And I've lost count of the number of people who've come onto LBC having been a television presenter and just couldn't hack it. Yeah. And people think it's a really easy job. I mean, what's not to like? You're talking for three hours. That's what you like doing. Yeah. But they, they don't actually understand all the different things that are happening at any one time. You've got five things, at least five things going on in your head for three hours. And that, that, at the end of that three hours, you're absolutely knackered. Yeah. I know there's no physical element to it, but you, you, you are mentally dead at the end of the three hours. And I get home of an evening, I have something to eat, I sit down on the couch and I'm asleep within five minutes. Yeah. Whatever it happens to be on, on the television, I never see it. Because you're, you're, you're talking, you are mentally thinking, right, I've got to, I'm interviewing Theresa May in five minutes. What am I going to ask her first of all? Because I don't prepare interviews, I just go and do them. You, you, are, you maybe have a caller on, you've got the fader up, you, they, they say something that is a bit sort of on the edge. Do you pull them up on it? Do you just let it go and let the listeners form their own opinions you've got your producer talking in your ear all sorts of things going on and then suddenly someone says there's been a terror attack in manchester we're going over to our reporter and that's when you earn your money i mean i remember when the woolwich terror attack happened on lee rigby i was on air i think an hour after it happened and that was that was in the early days of me presenting the drive time show and it that was in that was about two and a half years after i started on lbc and that was the first time when I thought to myself, after I'd finished that three-hour program, you can really do this. Yeah. Because there were so many things that I could have got wrong but didn't. Interviewing an eyewitness who had been three yards from it when it happened, who it turned out was in shock. And I was thinking, I'm sure there must be Ofcom rules about interviewing people who are in shock. And it was, I mean, it was an absolutely stunning interview. But at four o'clock in the afternoon... Does, does Mrs. Smith, who's taking her six-year-old son home from school, want to hear about the fact that somebody had had their head chopped off with a machete? Yeah. So you've got all of these things going on in your mind, thinking, can we? should I have pressed the dump button then? Am I going to get into trouble for that? 
Now, that interview won me a Silver Sony Award, which I still feel slightly guilty about because it wasn't me that were, I, mean, I was just the facilitator. It was the guy that was the eyewitness that was, should have got the award. But it, it, and it's moments like uh, the Malaysian airliner that was shot down over Ukraine. Yeah. We went into rolling news mode, but that's all we knew, that an airliner had been shot down over Ukraine. Well, how do you feel three hours of that? That yeah. is when you really earn your money as a presenter. And it's not something you can really learn. You can either do that or you can't, because you can't just keep, repeat that for, keep repeating that for three hours. You can't really speculate too much. So you talk to experts and try and make it entertaining, well, not entertaining, but you try and keep people listening by providing them different angles all the time. And that's what I love. And also the, the set-piece interviews, interviewing the Prime Minister, doing lead, Labour leadership debates with the four candidates when um, Jeremy Corbyn won. And my debate, I think, was one of the seminal moments in that campaign where I said to all, all, the other, all of them, would you have Ed Miliband in your shadow cabinet? And the other three gave all waffly answers. And I was getting really frustrated. And Jeremy Corbyn said, yes, I'd make him shadow environment secretary. And I just sort of exploded at that point. And I said to the others, I said, that is the reason why he's ahead in this in this race because you can't give an answer and he will give a straight answer. Yeah. And that apparently resonated so much with a lot of Labour Party people that I'm now to blame for the fact that Jeremy Corbyn ever became Labour leader. <laughs> something, something you can try and scrub off. Um, all right, so I've, I've taken up enough time, so I'm going to ask my kind of like the last three questions and for, for like quick answers. So you've been uh, incredibly gracious. Thank you very much for coming on. You've done me a very good kindness by, by coming on. Is there anything I could do for you? Oh. No, not at all. I, I, I like doing long form interviews because I think that they're so much more interesting than the sort of three or four minutes that you often get. I think the podcast platform is great. And so I, I mean, okay, we, ha we haven't talked much about my book, but I mean, I've been doing so many interviews about that over the, over the last month. And I think, well, why wouldn't I want to sort of accept opportunities to market that? So if you haven't bought it already, why can't we all just get along if you want yes. to sign copy, politicos.co.uk? So it's interesting because I, you know, I came to you through your blog like many, many years ago. My sister, who's in no way political whatsoever, uh, I told her, you know, I'm doing this podcast. I've got Ian Dale. She was so excited because oh, I love Ian Dale. Yeah, I, love, she said, I love his voice. Do you know, that's a, that's a really funny thing because I, when I started doing radio, I thought... I might not have the right voice for it because my voice can be a little bit soporific. In in some ways, I, I'm, I am suited to an evening show. I might be even more suited to an overnight show, I suspect. But over the years, my voice, I know, has changed. It, it's got deeper. It's yeah. got sort of more resonance to it. And I haven't had any voice coat. Well, actually, I tell a lie. In the early days of LBC, they, they had this woman who would come in, not just specifically for me, but for other people too. And she would do voice exercises, which I just hated. And Louise Burt, who now runs BBC Essex, she was working at LBC at, at the time. And she would always, particularly when I started doing the drive time show, which bre breakfast and drive time shows are much pacier than other shows on, on yeah. because people listen for a much shorter time. So she said, you've really got to zhuzh it up a bit. You've got to be far more pacey far more direct and she would literally at four o'clock come into the gallery and she would scream through the glass at me big bollocks <laughs> and, and it really had an effect and I, I felt myself becoming much pacier much more active I suppose but now I've gone back to doing the evening show 
I, I don't feel the need to do that. I, I do a news hour, so I'm quite pacey in that. But we do lots of emotional phone-ins. We do a mental health hour every Thursday at the moment. We started that at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think we're going to continue with it because it's a really, really emotional roller coaster. You don't want pace in that. You want empathy. Yeah. So it is, it is interesting to think about how, you, how, how people perceive your voice. And I don't really listen back to a lot of what I do. But when I do... I can tell that my voice has changed a lot over the last 10 years, but not, not in a way that is false, I hope. Um, all right, let me ask these uh, last two, and, and I'll let you get out of here to watch the rest of the, the test match. Everybody finishes off like podcasts and radio shows and whatnot with like, oh, can you recommend me like a, a book or a TV show or, or, or whatever? Uh, I'm more interested in your anti-recommendation. Anything you've watched, read, listened to that you, should, that you want to tell people to avoid because it doesn't stand up to what it should be? Channel 5 Royal Documentaries. <laughs> avoid them like the plague I mean, they are just like watching wallpaper some of the older ones like when they do like edward the eighth or things like that i mean they're okay but it's the ones about princess diana or Meghan markle oh absolutely dreadful so avoid those like the plague the last question this is a podcast about you know the kind of thing the people that uh, have that kind of inner drive that inner like determination to go and do something whether they've you know planned it or it happens to be kind of accidental who else would you like to hear interviewed on a, a kind of podcast like this i mean there are, the the interesting thing is that people who are in the limelight a bit and I, I, look, i'm not a celebrity but i'm vaguely well known and i i always recoil when people talk about celebrity because i've never wanted to be a celebrity having done having said that i did do pointless celebrities the other day with jackie smith i can't tell you how we did because we're not allowed to because it hasn't been shown <laughs> yet but suffice to say um we didn't leave empty-handed i, I don't I mean, somebody said to me, why don't you apply for this number 10 spokesman job? You'd be really good at it. And I said, well, there are many reasons why I wouldn't be good at it, but I don't want to become a household name. And they looked at me and thought, well, of course you do, really. Everybody who's on the radio really wants to be a major league celebrity. Well, I think it depends what you mean by celebrity. I don't want to go and walk down a street and be recognised by everybody. I don't want everybody to know my business. I don't want to be written about in the tabloid newspapers. I don't mind being recognised in the street. I quite like it, but I don't want it to happen sort of more than once a day or something. Yeah. And and yes, I would love to go on uh, on the Jungle Programme or Baker. You're definitely or, famous enough for I'm a Celebrity. Do you That's think 100%, so? 100%. See, my partner is horrified by the prospect of any of those sorts of things. And I have always said that I probably wouldn't do that. But I think if I was offered it, I just wouldn't be able to resist it. But let's suffice to say that no, nobody has offered it. That's because, that's because you're like currently on the radio. It's like no, people who have been on the nobody, radio like 25 years ago, they're the people that end up on like I'm a Celebrity. Yeah, probably. But nobody wants to see my gut in the shower on I'm a Celebrity, I don't think. Yeah, but the upside of that is it's like a month of like intensive dieting. So if you're like, do you know what? I've just, well, I that can't is 10 pounds or 50 yeah. pounds, whatever it happens to be. And trust me, I put on a pandemic 15, 25, whatever it happens to be. And you just go, do you know what? I'll go there. Well, I won't I, eat anything I but rice and beans. I just have to look at chocolate and I put on weight, but I haven't actually put on weight during this, which has really surprised me. But yeah, that would be the major advantage of it. I think though, I do know quite a lot of people that have been on it and they all say it is incredibly boring because yeah, obviously we are, we see the highlights, but this is just so monotonous. And having said that I've lost the ability to do nothing, I think that would probably be a good way of regaining it because you, you would be forced into it. Anyway, you never answered the question. Who would you like to hear oh, interviewed on a podcast? Who else would I like to hear on the? Well, I'm trying to think of people. I, I actually think you should have Jackie on this. 
I think okay. she would be really good at, at this because having been through what she went through at the end of her time in Parliament uh, and effectively reinvented herself, and she's a bit like me in that she's always doing something. She's got a portfolio career, again, yeah. a bit like me. I think she would be quite a good one to do. I'm trying to think of other people that I know. Liam Halligan is another one that I think would be worth talking to. He's, he's, an, he's got a really interesting background. And he's, it, it, we, it's funny because he's actually moved to the town that I grew up in, Saffron Walden. And we, we did a show together on CNN for two years. And I, I knew a bit before that, but not particularly well. And he has he he would have some really really interesting answers to some of the questions that you put to me. Probably more interesting than mine. <laughs> okay, awesome. Thank you very much, Yindi. I really appreciate you coming on and speaking to me. Not at all. Really enjoyed it.